Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. I'm David. I'm Tyler. You did, you went a little Casey Kasem there, <laughs> which I appreciate. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a good... Um, uh, I'm obsessed, as most people are, with the, like... You know the 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 tirades caught on. Oh, of uh, course, his is a, uh, a really good one. Yeah, goddamn death dedication. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um. but he's still. That's the other thing. The you know a tirade is one thing. A tirade in a like like Orson Welles, of course, has like that wonderful voice. And Casey Kasem has that iconic voice. And to hear him. And then you realize, like, oh, no, that's just his voice. Right. But yeah, yeah. He's st- yeah. there's still a certain cadence. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> it's not so strange to hear him angry. It feels fake. Yeah. But we do have a number of yeah, we have movies, movies we to, have talk, to about. talk about. And it occurred to me there might there might be some overlap. Like there's at least we, one overlap yeah. for sure. Yeah. Yes. Um, um, that might be the only one, though. Yeah. Uh, although my first movie that I'm going to talk about is a movie that I know you've seen. Okay. And I have said the name of this movie out loud exactly once in my life, and it didn't feel good. So get ready for the second time ever of me saying the name of this movie out loud. Hopefully it'll be the last. Okay. Even though I love the movie. Um, I watched Justin Chan's Gook. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay, yeah. that's it. I said it. Yeah, there I'm, it is. I'm done having, having said the name yeah. of that movie. It was like one of my favorite movies that year. I'm like, damn it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, uh but the uh, the reason I, I I watched it you can you can read my um someone we watched column over at Film Independent mm. uh, I talked about that and his newest movie Blue Bayou which uh, I think both movies are 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 terrific I I don't think I um I saw Blue Bayou first yeah and then I went back and watched this movie uh, his first movie um or actually it isn't his first is it it's the one that got him. But he made something called like Man on the Run or something. Oh, I don't before. remember actually. I think it's actually his second feature. But the one it's the one that, that made his name sort of as a as a director. Mm-hmm. Um so I all I knew about this movie uh from twenty seventeen was like I knew the general story that took place on the day of the um rioting after the verdict mm-hmm. of the, the Rodney King verdict was read, um, April nineteen ninety two. Um in uh, South Los Angeles, although it's actually, I realize it's not in South Los Angeles, it's in Paramount, which is oh. um, a, a neighboring city. It's There's uh, so many little air, like, yeah. there's, there's a commerce. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, it's like, that seems like a weird name for, is it a city or is uh, it like officially Paramount a city? Paramount is a city. Paramount is a city, okay. Yes, but it's, where yeah, whereas um, South LA, what they don't call South Central anymore officially, I think, oh, because okay. there's the, an association. The term with it, South Central yeah. got associated with like gangs and gang violence yeah. and stuff like that, so now it's just South Los Angeles. But I think people still say South Central. Probably, yeah. But uh, officially, it's just called South, South Los Angeles. Um, but it's neighboring that. So it's a place that near where the rioting was, but not. I didn't mm-hmm. realize that when I, that was interesting. But I, but I guess I. So I, and, I, and I knew that this was semi autobiographical, that, mm-hmm. that Justin Chan's actually did Justin John actually did work at a shoe store in Paramount that his father owned. Um, and, and, and so I, I knew it was black and white. I knew it was semi-autobiographical. I knew this was a guy who was an actor first who went to movies. I had an idea of what this movie was going to be, yeah. that it's not at all. Yeah. What I, uh, oh, when I, you know, I talked about this in the film independent, um, piece, 
when I, as soon as I was done watching it, um, after having watched Blue Bayou just a few days before, uh, I got on IMDb and I was like, are you sure this guy never directed like a music video? Because he has these impulses for mm-hmm. like coming up with these visual moments yeah. that, that like tie into what's going on, but also just sort of work as s- sublime moments on their, on their own that lift out of the, the, the movie, the, the, you know, the, um, there's a scene where the, the girl, there's a girl who like a neighborhood girl who like hangs out. You've seen the movie. Yeah. hangs out at their, at their shoe store. And there's a scene where she's just dancing in the parking lot while he's doing donuts in his car <laughs> around her. Yeah. And the title of the movie, a racial slur is spray painted on the hood of the car. Yeah. It's such a striking image in this beautiful black and white with the, like whatever you'd call it, the squealing tires and the steam smoke yeah. coming off of the tires and this girl like dancing. It's, it's so cool. It doesn't like, it's the kind of thing when I talk about when like when someone talks about a movie like or a scene in a movie like oh they didn't need that they didn't need to do sure there's no there is no narrative need for that sequence but it's so cool and also represents this mix of like youthful freedom but also this fury at lack of options yeah at, uh, all at the same time and there there are a number of moments like that there's you know the slow motion someone throwing a molotov cocktail in the movie mm-hmm. um and by the blue bayou uh which is in very much in color um uh, <laughs> has a lot of has all, all of this kind of stuff too but we're not talking about blue bayou we're talking about the movie from 2017 yeah. uh, that Justin Tan directed and, and, and starred in um i was i was really blown away i think this guy's yeah. a, a fantastic talent and now i want to see uh ms purple is the one he made in between this and oh, Bayou okay. that i that i didn't see and and i guess the one he made before and i'm fascinated to see what else he's done I, I, as an actor yeah and he also play he plays the lead role i don't remember if you yeah i didn't say that. that okay okay i think i said that he also plays the lead in blue bayou um as an actor i I think he's best known for the Twilight movies, but I didn't mm-hmm. see any of them. Um, I saw him in Wayne Wang's Coming Home Again uh, okay. in 2019, and he's fantastic in that mm-hmm. as, as well. Uh, so yeah, big. Uh, I'm a big fan. All of a sudden, I yeah. guess of uh, of Justin Chong. Uh, next up, I watched. It was supposed to be a kickoff. I watched it on October first. It was supposed to be a kickoff to October to like horror movies. It's not a scary movie at all. Okay. I mean, it has zombie-like creatures in it okay i don't want to get i don't want to get under the skin of the like the yeah. zombie crowd who's like no they're only zombies if they die and come back to life so right. like 28 days later not a zombie movie because they're infected or whatever um anyway you know the tropes yeah so h- have you seen 1984's night of the comet directed by tom eberhardt no i haven't um so it's a uh, it's a movie in which uh, it takes place in Los Angeles, 1984, there's a, a, a once a every like tens of millions of years comet is going to pass by. Uh, the Earth is actually going to pass through the comet's tail. And so everyone's hosting these like comet watch parties or whatever. And the comet ends up like incinerating and killing every like living thing on the planet, except for a few people who happen to be like behind a steel wall or like a, there's a handful of survivors and then there's a handful of other people who like didn't die and they're the zombies. Or right. So, um, uh, yeah, basically you've got some like survivors. Of course they're like 
it's you know very mid 80s la they're like young hip and hot people mm-hmm. who survived um fighting off uh not zombies but zombie-ish type people and then there's this whole other plot where there's this like underground research facility and the scientists are trying to like figure out what's going on but the scientists might not be great themselves mm. you know um it's a uh, it, it I think as the movie goes on, it unfortunately loses steam um, and just feels like it has to hit the marks of like, okay, and now they're going to get captured by the scientists. And right. This guy's going to like, but the early part, like the early, like what we now, the term we now use of like world building is a lot of fun and um, strangely funny too. Mm-hmm. The movie has a great sense of humor, especially in the early going. Like there's, cause when the, the comet, turns everyone to dust and so as they're walking around through los angeles a beautifully empty mid-80s downtown los angeles is great there will sometimes be these little like tableau of like like oh i guess that's what these people were doing at the moment that they died yeah. and it's like it's funny but it's also horrifying with yeah, like, yeah. empty clothes and, and like dust um, on the on the ground um and uh yeah there's some funny lines early on but uh i i can't go in too much too much into it it's um it has a lot of promise early on that it doesn't i think fulfill and it's also just not not scary enough to recommend would you say no not quite i would say not quite yeah there's one part with like a zombie not zombie kid that's uh pretty cool but okay yeah no not quite what did you watch uh i think this will be our our uh, bit of overlap here Uh, that's good because it's also my next movie okay just go right into all right many saints of newark yes yeah well, you go first. It's your movie. Oh, okay. Um, I thought it was fine at best. Some good performances. Of course, it's like it's it's a serviceable mob movie. With, with I think Alessandro Nivola does a really great job. I really enjoy Corey Stoll, but of course, with a performance like his, along with many others, your enjoyment of it is rooted in your knowledge of the character. And I think Corey Stoll you a hundred percent buy him as a young junior soprano. Yeah. Uh, just the cadence movement, the whole thing. Um, so th- there's good stuff in it and there are good sequences in it. Um, but for the most part, it's the, the, the most regrettable thing about it is that it's connected to the Sopranos, which is a work of genius. And this is a work of fine. I think I uh, I get where you're coming from, and I'm not going to sit here and say it's great, mm. but I liked it more than most people seem to have. Mm. Um, I think because I saw more of not just the there's a lot of like fan service and Easter eggs yeah. and like references, but then it also like got me questioning like, well, if this person's around, where's you know, where's Larry Boy Barisi? Where's Jimmy Altieri? Where's Ray Curto? <laughs> yeah. You know, the, the, but I have to realize that most people who even like The Sopranos don't know it as well as I do. Yeah. I haven't watched it multiple times in, in, in its entirety. But it's not, there, there, so there's a lot of like references. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I think there's also a lot more of the DNA of The Sopranos than people are giving it credit for. I think, um, especially in the scenes, I don't know how much we can spoil cause I didn't know this going in, so I won't, but I'm going to spoil it in our main episode this weekend. <laughs> okay. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. But, yeah. uh, 
for those who don't want to be spoiled, um, Dickie, Alexander Neville, he, there's a, a relative of his that he visits in prison in multiple points mm-hmm. in the movie. Those scenes are my favorite. Those scenes are the best movie. scenes. Um, because it has that, that Sopranos mix of like someone, because this character who is like a former mob guy who was serving a life sentence yeah. and has become a Buddhist, but it isn't like, He's not like a corny guy, like in robes, like sitting cross legged or whatever. Yeah. He's still the Jersey mob guy. Yeah. But he's also just a, a Buddhist at the same time. And the idea of someone like Dickie or like any character on Sopranos. Yeah. Coming from a, a, a type of American life that is reflexively opposed to self-examination. Yeah. <laughs> coming up against these ideas that, that, never would have occurred to him is that's so Sopranos to me that and it's not just Tony goes to therapy that's the 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 jumping off point but there's it happens repeatedly in the Sopranos people coming yeah. um uh, uh, up against um philosophical ideas spiritual yeah. ideas and and that stuff um and not really knowing what to what to do with it maybe absorbing it a little bit but you don't see characters in the Sopranos change that much that's kind right. of the point and i think that's what happens uh, there's also a um, a scene that um, I think Natalie and I were not quite sure about, so I don't know. Uh, well, okay. He tells this character, uh, Dickie Moltisanti tells this character that he's like looking to atone for certain mm-hmm. sins, and he's like, "What have you done?" And he says that he's he's coaching like a youth baseball team. Right. It's more specific than that, but I won't go into it. Um, do you think that's true? Because I don't. I, I saw that as, like, the scene, the montage we see of him coaching, I see that as the idea that, in his head. The, it f- that feels like a Sopranos dream sequence because yeah. it's all so perfect. Yeah. And yeah. the way he's championed at the end, it's it feels like a, a way a character wishes people saw him. But also I think the Sopranos thing of it is that I think to Dickie, imagining himself doing that is as... It's as, it's as much as he needs. Yeah. He can, he'll let himself off the hook for imagining. Yeah, I could, I could coach a youth baseball team or whatever. Yeah. Um, uh, and that will make him feel better. And that's, that, that's very Sopranos. I also think the movie is funnier than people are giving it credit for. Um, in that Sopranos way of like, just like there's a, there's a scene that takes place at like a confirmation, like, reception where mm-hmm. a, like an eighth grade girl has just been confirmed and like an older relative just coming up to her and saying the name you picked, the saint you picked Apollonia is the patron saint of dentists. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yes, no, one, she's, she doesn't know what to do with that information. That's very, that's very funny. Very Sopranos. I think Vera Farmiga Farmiga is great and also funny, but also heartbreaking in one scene. Yes. She has a great, uh, it's a, enough great that scene. I, I, I just wish it was just about her, you know? Um, yeah. I and her I, scenes with, is it Michael Gandolfini? Yeah. Yeah. I think those, and then the ones that you're talking about in the prison, I think those are the scenes that are the, the most electric, uh, because it's all about stuff that, that isn't said. That's just like the passes between characters, like the, the care, the, the relative in jail because of his unique situation. And then he is not really a part of this anymore. And has adopted a philosophy, like his ability to see through Dickie mm-hmm. 
is is pretty amazing but he's not yet to the point just because he is a buddhist doesn't mean he can necessarily um articulate the the beliefs or the philosophy yeah, yeah. he's still like you said he's still the the mob guy yeah and but yeah but you can tell he has like uh he has, says something insightful and then he says what do i know I'm a murderer yeah yeah <laughs> and and i think that performance really helps I, I do think that like the performances all around really elevate the material and in certain scenes the performances like are transportive it it, it made me think of the Sopranos not in not merely because of like oh that's a good Im- impression because I don't think Vera Farmiga's uh, uh, Livia Soprano I don't think it's like a, a spot on like oh yes uh, that's a one to one it's it evokes her as sh- as it should she's much yeah. younger it evokes her while also creating a character in and of herself and so I I thought she was I've always liked Vera Farmiga but uh but yeah, I think she's definitely the highlight of the film. Um, there are a couple things in the movie that I think fan service wise. Now I'll, I'll pivot to what I didn't like. Mm-hmm. Um, although there's more, one more thing I'll say that I did like to anyone out there saying that John Magaro is like over the top. Mm-hmm. Is your contention that little Steven's performance <laughs> on the Sopranos was nuanced? Like yeah. he's just doing He's doing Sylvia. Like, yeah, yeah. Sylvia was a ridiculous character on The Sopranos. He's a ridiculous character yeah. on The Many Sense of Newark. It's, it's, it's fine. Um, but, uh, okay, so it, pivoting to the stuff I, I don't like, there were a couple things that I don't know if I should spoil. There are a couple things that were just like, oh, yeah, they talked about that on the show, and we see it happen. Right. I don't think we needed to see um, what Uncle Junior says to the girl cousins <laughs> um, yeah. or the thing when Livia has the beehive hairdo mm-hmm. uh, in the car. I guess Sopranos fans will know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Uh, we didn't need to see that. The number one complaint I have about this movie that I hate it because it's so unnecessary. Too much fucking goddamn CGI. Okay. The, there's uh, multiple like fires that are clearly fake. Yeah. Oh, yes. There's also um, a guy gets like half his head blown off and it's like very fake looking. Mm-hmm. And then the worst one, there's a part where a guy gets like uh, they're at a mecha- auto mechanic chop and you know the one of those like guns that takes the like yeah nuts off of a tire or whatever like a guy shoves it in the guy's mouth and and like presses it and like teeth and blood go everywhere hypothetically but that's the thing you're like having this reaction right now me saying it like oh my god that's the reaction i should be having right and i would have had if they had just like kept it out of frame and had like blood and tea spewing into frame instead of this fucking like itchy and scratchy shit of like fake CGI blood and teeth going everywhere. Yeah. It looks so stupid yeah. that it, you didn't have to show it. It would have been more effective just not showing it. Yeah. It and made me like mad. Yeah. And the thing, like if you are going to show it, like I understand like my, my reaction was to simply putting it in his mouth. Right. Because yeah. you can imagine like bad things are coming and then, yeah. the, and then it happens like, yeah, okay, fine. But it does feel a little over the top. Uh, and I'm fine with them showing it. I just don't like what they did with it. I think sort of underplaying it and just like imagine if it didn't go flying everywhere, but instead the guy just winds up with a mouthful of blood and teeth. Right. Like yeah. imagine how horrifying that would be. There's so many, there's, yeah, there's different ways you could do it than just show cartoon yeah. teeth, which is what it looked like yeah. to me. Yeah. Um, it, yeah. Every, uh, all, all of that just took me out. Anyway, we spent a lot of time on 
many scenes with Newark, but um, it's the only bit of overlap, so it's fine. And um, yeah, uh, Natalie disagrees with me on this, but I feel like it's Sopranos enough that it now needs to become part of a rewatch. That if you're going to rewatch The Sopranos, you should watch. Would you watch it before? season after, one or after, after the whole thing after the whole thing okay yeah um although now because natalie and i are as always rewatching the sopranos so mm-hmm. we um uh we watched the episode after in season two the episode after christopher gets shot when he's in the hospital mm-hmm. and his mother comes to visit him and i'm like oh yeah i just saw her and he's like <laughs> talking about like seeing a vision of his dad when he was like uh, in the in the coma and i'm like oh i've never i've seen this episode a half dozen times before and now i'm picturing alessandro Nivola. i wasn't doing yeah. that before um that's kind of fun i guess and i do think i mean obviously the idea of narrating from the grave uh which i don't think that's a spoiler it's the first moment of the film yeah i forgot i didn't like that either <laughs> I didn't necessarily like it, but I actually liked the way it was introduced. Like as we're going yeah, through the nice. graveyard, the idea that everybody is narrating their own story yeah. and we've just, and we arrive at Christopher. Um, I think that's a really neat idea. Um, also rewatching that same episode um, from where to eternity is what it's called. Uh, Cause one of my, one of the weird things in watching many Saints of Newark is that like, Oh, I always thought big pussy was like, Tony's age, not closer to Polly and Sill's age, but he's like older, but then watching from where to eternity in which he, uh, Tony and pussy kill somebody at the end of that episode. Mm. And then they like go out for a steak and Tony talks about, he says like, remember you brought me here after my first one or Mm. whatever. So like, I guess it was established that pussy was something of an elder to Tony. I think I, I think that, I never quite realized until watching this that like, I mean, I knew that the other guys that like, uh, Paulie and, and Sylvia, like I knew they were older than Tony. I don't think I realized that they were meant to be that much older than him, like easily 10 to 15 years. He's yeah. yeah. Um, I don't think I realized that. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, cause Tony's also younger than we think because yes, that's true. <laughs> it's like when you, it's like when you realize that like Homer Simpson is officially like 38 and a half. I'm yeah. like, shit, <laughs> I'm older than, than Homer yeah. Simpson. Yeah, me too. Okay. I could do an entire podcast just talking about stuff in many scenes of Newark that sure. relates to, to talk about like, Oh, I, I, I don't know how much I can say. Eh, just say it. Because uh, I don't know if people were avo- avoiding spoilers, but on this podcast, I talked about how one thing I hoped we saw, one thing I hoped <laughs> we saw was young Artie Bucco. Yeah. And we got Artie Bucco at two different ages. Yeah, we did. It's, uh, But we don't see him as the uh, as like the, the little player. No, but he is like... But he's there. He's in the, when the younger of him is like with Tony getting involved in like yeah. shenanigans, like at school, you yeah. know, mob, like mob junior type shenanigans at school. That's, that's fun. And then he, yeah, uh, he, and, and then we see Jackie April. Oh, guys. Yeah. I would have loved to see a young, uh, uh, Tony B, but I want him to be played by Steve Buscemi. And he says, <laughs> greeting fellow, greetings, fellow. Uh, right. Yeah. Um, yeah, there is a reference to Tony. Blundetto, they do reference yeah, him. Yes. Um, uh, yeah, I would have liked to have seen more, and I understand, I understand why it's not the story they're telling, but I would have liked to have seen um, Rosalie April or Angie Bompensero, like yeah. the, um, or uh, now I'm forgetting 
Silvio's wife's name, but I can yeah. picture. Uh, I, I like. I always like those characters on the uh, on the Sopranos. When when Natalie and I went to Paris in. 2019 we did multiple things that carmen Rowe did when they went to paris <laughs> um not all of them. we didn't go to like the tackier shit right of course uh, all right let's move on mm-hmm. sorry that was too long so next is yours uh next is a, a documentary a new documentary that hasn't come out yet called flee f-l-e-e directed by Jonas poher rasmussen um and i guess kind of the less you know about it the better because it it um but it's basically uh, he made uh, this documentary about one of his best friends that he's known since he was 15, who is um, an Afghan refugee who moved to um, Denmark. Is that the movie? No, I forget. Yes, Copenhagen, which mm-hmm. is in Denmark. Um, uh, he was a refugee who was, I guess, found asylum, granted asylum as, as a teenager um, in Copenhagen and um, never talked much about his past his youth in, in Afghanistan and how he came to, to Denmark. Um, and so, but this guy finally, I guess, convinced his friend to tell the story, but the, the guy is so, it's so raw for him that his agreement was, I don't want anyone to see me tell hmm. the story. So it's an animated documentary. Oh, interesting. Um, that he actually like, animates uh, like Persepolis, right? Uh, that was what that was. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I guess so. He, like he, literally animates a couple of like actual like interview segments. Like there's an animated version of the director talking to this Mm. guy, but then, but that's just like kind of like little, um, benchmarks throughout the movie. Mostly you're seeing his, his story. You're hearing his voice as he's telling it, but you're seeing the story, uh, uh, animated. And, um, uh, yeah, there's, there's something to be said for just a, uh, a, a great story. Um, but also, and, and it, I'm not going to say, say too much about his story because it's uh, it has all sorts of um, terrible, but also like, oh my god, I can't believe that happened type of stuff in it. Um, but also, it I, I, I think it the movie does a good job of illustrating, no pun intended, the way that not only obviously something like you know being separated from your family, maybe showing your family dying, having to move across the country or across the world as a teenager. Obviously that leaves scars, right? but also keeping secrets for 20 years leaves scars and, and alters who you are. Cause there's also, it's not just the story. There's also, we learn like who this guy has become. He's become a very um, successful scholar in the modern day. And he has a boyfriend that he lives with, but they're having trouble in their relationship because he's so secretive and he doesn't mm-hmm. know any other way to be. Hmm. Um, it's really, uh, for a movie that's, you know, to, to be glib about it, that's a cartoon. It's a uh, really heavy <laughs> shit. Yeah, I'm um, sure. But, uh, uh, yeah, really, really well done. I, I, I liked it. All right, you're up next. All right, next. Unless you want to talk more about many Saints of new work. Let's do it. I could. Uh, let's do a scene, but if we could do almost like a commentary, that'd be great. Yeah. Um, now next for me is Andy Serkis's Venom. Let there be carnage. Um, I mostly hated it. Okay. I didn't like the first one that much and it has its defenders. There are, there are people it that like the does, first yeah. one and there are people that, that like this one. Uh, and that's, that's fine. Um, 
but yeah and and my reason for liking my sorry my reason for not liking it is it's the kind of thing and i'm sure you've experienced this as well where it's like you know if they just did this a little differently i could love it like i could really embrace it there is a manic quality to the film that in a if if used differently i would welcome because i do think that most superhero movies uh i think they are sometimes not just long but just the way they dwell on things and draw things out it's it's almost like they're trying this is something Zack Snyder does a lot they're trying so hard to convince you how serious they are they're like let's just really spend time on mm-hmm. this moment or that moment this is a lean 90 minutes and like we we jump into scenes whatever's supposed to happen happens it's like what you were talking about with uh the film that must not be named um yeah. <laughs> but uh the uh the idea it's like is it you know is a certain scene needed in venom let there be carnage like there is nothing unneeded okay. in it like it is and that includes lines of dialogue character development like it's literally just like get in whatever needs to happen so the plot moves forward happens and then we are out and in a way that should be refreshing the problem is the problem is that if you're gonna do that Mm -hmm. you need to recognize that you are structuring your film differently and that you can't have your cake and eat it too. If you're not going to allow long moments for us to really understand what a character is going through emotionally, if you're not going to allow that, don't try to do that. And that I think is the real problem here. Uh, like as the film uh, starts, uh, Eddie Brock is, is living with venom, the, the symbiote that is like connected to him. And it's, it's meant to be sort of like a, like a uh, odd couple kind of thing, you know, where they're constantly disagreeing and all that. And it's meant to be kind of funny. Uh, and it, and it is at times, but a, I don't consider Tom Hardy to be that great at comedy. Uh, but also, cause also he's giving a very odd mumbly kind of performance. So I can't always understand what no. he's saying. I know crazy. <laughs> right. Um, and so, and also they just, and they rush through whatever comedy is going to be there. So it's like, okay, I don't, I don't have time to laugh if there's something funny. And then there comes this moment where they, they just fight so much that Venom finally decides like, you know what? I'm, I'm out of here. And so he, he latches on to another person and Eddie Brock is finally free and he can just live his life and just do what he wants to do. And so they have this montage of him getting back to normal. The montage is, I'm going to say, I don't know, 35 seconds long. And then essentially it's not like venom comes back immediately, but like trouble, trouble shows up again in, in a different form. And so it's just like, man, like if, if you, first off, I never got a sense that Eddie was like tortured in a way that, that he would feel free if venom was gone. Like, Like you didn't take the, sometimes time is necessary. And sometimes these other aspects from an emotional standpoint is necessary if you want us to care. And for the most part, I just didn't care about any of this, even though there's some good stuff. Woody Harrelson as carnage is of course great and delightful. I just wish that the film 
was as invested in him or any of these other characters as they required. I don't know. It's, and then after a while, and this is something we've talked about before, like I have nothing against CGI, but when it comes right down to it, it's like, all right, Venom versus Carnage. It's Godzilla versus Kong. It's, it's one CGI monster versus another. But the difference is that with Godzilla versus Kong, you got a sense of weight and gravity where mm-hmm. here, whereas here it's just like, it's two blobs fighting each other in basically zero gravity. Uh, this doesn't really, I don't care much about this. And it's just, it was such a dissatisfying experience to me. That's too bad. Yeah. That doesn't sound good to me, but I, again, the movies, both movies definitely have their defenders. So right. I, I understand that. Um, Moving on to uh, a movie that I'm thankfully not under embargo for. It's not, it seems like, for some reason, with the pandemic, when everything was like a screener, suddenly everything was under embargo all the time. Yeah. You know? And now I guess we're getting back to in-person screenings. I went to this press screening, and the embargo rules are starting to make a little bit more sense mm-hmm. again. Um, so uh, even though it doesn't come out for... Um, uh, a few weeks, uh, I am allowed to talk to you about Radu Jude's Bad Luck Banging or Looney Porn, um, which is uh, a fantastic movie. It's very funny, but also um, not something I'm eager to sit through again real soon because I think it has a, um, it's a, uh, what's what I'm looking for? Um, a provocative bit of, I guess satire is what you would what you would call it, but um, the things that satirizing feel, even though I'm not a Romanian, um, feel very close to home with the way that it's a movie that takes place during the pandemic. Though it's not about that, but it I think in lots of ways kind of is sure, but not directly about that because it's a it's a picture, it's a portrait of people who. Uh, like I was saying about Dickie Moltisanti, um, have zero interest in examining their own behavior or changing their own behavior one iota for other people, and yet are uh, uh, immediately keen to tell another person what they're doing wrong mm-hmm. and and uh, to 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 judge. So the the movie, to the extent that there's a story to the movie, um, there's there's sort of three, not sort of, it has like very clearly divided into three chapters. The first chapter is a woman going about her day. Um, but with the knowledge, everything is sort of like fraught because with the knowledge that a home video she made with her husband, um, has ended up on the internet. Um, and so that's like in not, a, it's sometimes in the back of her mind. Sometimes it's the topic of conversation. She's also a school teacher. Hmm. So that's, um, that's what's going on. And the second part of the movie is, has nothing to do with story at all. And I don't even really want to go into describing it. It's just sort of like a, um, I guess it's a, it's like a visual comedic visual, like encyclopedia where he <laughs> brings up like terms, like, terms that are used in politics or in, um, in cultural discussions or, or, or whatever anthropology, you know? Um, and then he has very, uh, uh, shocking like definitions of this. So like, um, I think the term like aboriginals in the definition is, um, 
nuisances that pester the soil of newfound land or whatever. Um, uh, and, and, um, uh, obviously that's not the movie's point of view. Right. You understand if you see it, this is all, um, satirical. And then the third, um, segment of the movie and the, and the sort of, it's one long scene, one big showpiece scene of this woman. Uh, there's been a meeting called, um, with the other, other faculty and the parents of her students about what to do about this, uh, this issue. And that's, um, it's hilarious, but it's also infuriating because like some of the ways that people talk to each other in this meeting, you're like, this isn't that exaggerated at all. You know, we've seen, uh, people, uh, yelling at each other. So, so sure they're so sure they're right. Mm. Um, uh, and uh, and then the, the bizarre thing about it is because, like I said, it takes place during the pandemic. The whole final scene takes place outside the school. They all have like chairs and desks set up, yeah. but they're in like the lawn outside the school, and like everyone's wearing masks, and like the principal will be uh, talking, and her mask will slip down, and you'll hear someone say like "nose" or whatever. <laughs> and she like pulls the mask over her nose. It's um, it's a it, the energy and the I think the 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 what's one of them i I can't uh the motor of this movie the animating force of this movie um is so immediate and 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 passionate um and uh not kind like not willing to be forgiving of people it's Mm -hmm. it's a very like um um uh, unadorned, I guess, man, unembellished. I, I, I don't know. My brain is not working tonight. Um, but, uh, I, I, am very, uh, very much in favor of, of, of this movie. Mm. Um, I will give you Tyler, the word of warning that I was, was given to all of us at the press screening, because I know you, um, care about this sort of thing. The sex tape that they make is real. And we see it in the movie, um, at great length. Mm. Um, it's not, it's weirdly not the same actress. It's supposed to be the actress. I think, okay. I don't know if Roger Jude like actually licensed existing amateur porn or hired porn stars sure, to make an amateur sure. porn, but it's supposed to be her, but it's not her, but it is. Yeah. The movie opens with a extended, like actual bit of loony pornography, I guess. <laughs> Um, so that is definitely a warning to people who, um, one thing that I, one question that I have along those lines, because it's, you know, it's supposed to be like this husband and wife and you get the impression, maybe I get the impression this is something that they don't do very often. So I imagine it's like poorly shot, uh, and all of that. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. Um, anyway, so that's my first one. My second one. Okay. All right. Oh boy. What a shift in mood because this movie is terrible and I'm so bummed because I said, I almost, this is like the fates coming back to, to, to bite me. This is like, I, I tempted fate is what happened. That's what I'm looking for. My brain doesn't work. Uh, earlier this year, I watched a movie called Casanova last love that I hated. Mm-hmm. And I talked about how much I have liked the films of Benoit Jaco, uh, so much. No, it's like, uh, so I, I remember saying on the movie journal, like, ah, he made a bad one. I know he's already made another movie since, you know, maybe it'd be better. It's if anything, it's worse. It's not worse. It's, but it's almost worse in the sense that like I hated Casanova last love. I was bored to tears by Susanna Andler is what it's called. Um, and that's 
that is almost worse to me. Like, sure. I would rather if I'm gonna spend yeah. like an white hot rage is always more fun than boredom. Yeah. yeah, I'd rather be angry at it than just like because it feels like it's four hours long. Uh, it's based on a play. It doesn't try to not doesn't okay. try to pretend it's not based on a play um, in which um, Charlotte Gainsbourg, an actor actress that I love, um, is the uh, wife of a. Uh, fabulously rich man and she is uh, scoping out a potential vacation home for them to rent for the summer. Um, and so uh, like we see her being like shown the home and then she like stops and she has multiple visitors come while she's like there. So it's just two hours of Charlotte Gainsbourg in a room or on the uh, veranda overlooking mm-hmm. the sea. Um, and uh yeah, it's I I, I, I wish I, I wish the movie found a way to um, to break out of of the the rut of just like the sameness, even with like it has this great view of of the ocean. But I think Susanna Endler, the character, she's very depressed, and this is a movie about someone who is depressed. And I think it. I think Jacko unfortunately chooses to illustrate that in the most sort of banal terms imaginable. Like, Oh, she's depressed. I'm just going to make a boring movie then. Whereas like, I mean, Lars von Trier made melancholia. One of the greatest movies ever made about depression. Right. That's not a boring movie uh, at all. You don't have to, a movie about a depressed person doesn't have to be two hours of her, like not wanting to get off the couch and right. like talking in like a hushed tone. Cause she's so sad and depressed. Like it's just so boring. Yeah. And admittedly like the depression takes a lot of different forms, but one of the, you know, one interesting thing about it is that there are people who are tremendously depressed and yet can still be very charismatic and, and to such an extent that people are like, Oh, I had no idea. Uh, and that sort of thing. And, and then there are other people that are genuinely like, can feel very sluggish, don't want to get off the couch. So if that's the film he chose to make, it's like, but there's still a way to make that. I don't know. Maybe he's trying to get you to empathize, but at the same time, like, I don't know. It's, 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 it's tough having not seen the film, but there's no, uh, not that I'm one to get like hung up on or insist on like a traditional three act structure, Mm -hmm. but there's just no rise and fall in the movie. Mm. It's so static. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with bite clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite clear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Yeah. Yeah. All right. You're next. Okay. So we're into my section of rewatches uh, as a function of uh, classes that I'm teaching. So... Uh, I'm going to go out of order here because I want to go with what you were talking about with the rise and fall and and character arc and stuff like that. Um, Wish I could do that. Wish I could go out of order. I know. I know. I'm too rigid for a moment. I just thought like, it's like, Oh no, you can't go out of order. And then I thought, why not? 
who am I? You? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I do what I want. Um, the only person that tells me what to do is my pastor. Anyway. Um, <laughs> uh, so no, I, I rewatched, um, Darius, uh, martyrs, um, sound of metal to, oh. to talk about sound in my film aesthetics class. Um, and I haven't seen it since I watched it the first time and I'm watching it this time. Of course, I still love it. I still adore it. I think it's, I think it's a beautifully realized film. Uh, obviously the way that it uses sound, the way that it uses music, uh, is very effective, but also from a script standpoint, I think it's really, uh, man, it really works. Like it's, given the nature of the story and the nature of the main character, it just seems so unconventional. And yet it's a very traditional, uh, like character study about this guy who basically has defined himself one way, probably as a way to cope with, uh, addiction. So it's like, okay, well that's not me anymore. Now what I am is a musician and I'm doing, and I'm a boyfriend and I'm doing very well. And then his hearing is, is ripped from him. And so it's like, well now, now what am I? I'm nothing. And just watching him deal with that and then watching the natural developments that come from him being part of this deaf community and all that, and then watching him deal with that and then scan and then sort of scamper back to who he was and really trying and then realizing he can't actually be that. So he might as well figure out who he's going to be now. And, you know, one thing that I really like and something that unfortunately doesn't happen as often as I would like is that there are character studies where your main character, you're always on his side Mm-hmm. And he does he or she doesn't seem to have a lot of f- flaws here. The character makes bad decisions. He can be very thoughtless. Uh, and yet I'm always rooting for him. And I think those are the, the, those for me are the most effective character studies where they're, they're far from perfect and they're, they will often make decisions you know, when, like when a friend makes a decision, you're like, Oh boy, that was a, that was a bad call. Uh, but that doesn't mean that you look down on the friend or anything like that. You still love them quite a bit. And I feel like we really love the character of Ruben. And so from a structure standpoint, like again, the the peaks and valleys and all that, like, and then him arriving in a very different emotional place than where he started. Uh, I think it's, I think it's a, wonderfully realized film obviously from a from the sense of form but also from screenwriting structure and and wonderful dialogue as well it's it is just man it's it's and it's a film i feel like i can watch over and over again which is good because it's probably going to be my official movie to watch when talking about sound in my aesthetics class uh, i've kind of locked into it now uh just like when talking about color i we watch do the right thing um partially because i just pleasantville yeah it's i mean <laughs> no, you know i think a better movie uh, yeah it, it is um every once in a while there do the right thing is one of those things it's like well look i'm gonna find a way to work it in no matter what and it's like okay the way he uses color done i'll take it um but yeah and so sound of metal i think uh previously it was scott pilgrim or tremors uh both have a wonderful soundscape but i think this one from the standpoint of using sound to create create empathy uh i think it's 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 right up there um when I worked at a video store in, in Chicago, 
um, a guy came in like an opened account and his name was Gary Ross. Oh. And I was like, Oh, did you direct Pleasantville? And he was like, no. And I was like, I bet you get that all the time. And he's like, no, <laughs> like most people don't know the director of Pleasantville was named Gary Ross. I interned for Gary Ross, you know? Oh, I did not know that. Hmm. Um, all right. Uh, now on to the real, uh, kickoff of horror movies in, oh, okay. in October for me, at least uh, ones I haven't seen before that I'm so glad I've seen. I'll, I'm going to bet you've seen this. Okay. Stan Winston's Pumpkinhead. It's been a very long time. Uh, and I, I have, I remember the monster. I remember the basic story, uh, but I don't have a well, super specific memory. I, did, I didn't know the story. And I didn't know, like, obviously I know Stan Winston. I know who he is. He makes monsters and the monster mm-hmm. uh, effects in here are awesome yeah um but it's more than that it's like a good movie um you've got lance hendrickson hendrickson in the mm-hmm. lead role so you, you know already you're uh on, on on the right path um and uh yeah he like it's this sort of i guess it's supposed to be like appalachia or whatever yeah it, i think so i think one of the people I was watching it with was like, I'm pretty sure that's Topanga Canyon. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> it's supposed to be Appalachia. Yeah. Um, and, uh, some city folk cause an accident that, uh, hurts his son. And so he, uh, goes into the deep woods to find a witch to like set pumpkin head loose on these yeah. city folks. Um, uh, but the movie is not like gleeful about that. It's, it has fun with the monster doing like being a monster and like killing people in fun ways. The guy right. gets impaled on a rifle yeah. and then like pumpkin head, like lifts the rifle up. So there's like, cause pumpkin head's huge. Yes. So, uh, like there's a guy, you know, impaled on a rifle, uh, being hoisted in midair. It's pretty cool looking. Um, so there's like fun stuff like that, but, uh, the, like the movie is actually taking this idea of like grief and vengeance kind of seriously. And Very Lance much Anderson so, yeah. is like, tortured about the loss of his son but also about what he's wrought mm-hmm. at the same time it's it's not what i expected about i was like oh it's going to be like a fun like monster movie about uh uh a monster that has a head like a pumpkin which it is but uh it's it's uh surprisingly like richly shot it was the um uh, I watched it at a friend's house and uh, a oh, friend of the show, Fra- uh, Frank, feel my wrath McGrath. Mm-hmm. And he has the scream factory Blu-ray. It looks great. Nice. Um, like rich, rich colors. Also, I wanted to call out, I had to look up her name. Um, Peggy Walt, Peggy Walton Walker plays the old witch mm-hmm. and she's so great. She's, there's a certain kind of like hamming it up. That is, is just right on, 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 on point for a certain type of movie. And she's, and she's doing like, she's an old witch, but she also, she's like an Appalachian witch. So she's got a Southern accent and like, yeah. it's so great. I loved every moment that she was on screen. I should explain my weird hesitance to talk about whether I'd seen the movie or not. I saw again, many years ago and had very little memory for it, but it does feature pretty heavily into the documentary that I just made. So I watched a lot of scenes, oh, okay, but not the film in its entirety. So I rem- so in watching, and of course my first, I was like, I got to watch this all the way through again, because some of the stuff that I watch is like, Oh yeah. Like these city folk, 
they're careless and reckless, and but they're one not. Of them is a dick. One of the, yes, yeah, but they're not heartless yeah. at all. Uh, they feel many of them feel horrible about what has happened. Yeah, and yeah, so like you can't even really feel that gleeful. Yeah, it's not the thing of let's like let's just have a bunch of dumb teens, yeah, or dumb college kids that we can enjoy watching get picked off. Yeah, no, there's one of them that is a bad guy, but yeah. like the rest of them are. Uh, yeah, you don't want to see them get sad when they get killed, but also it's kind of cool. Yeah, and it, and it's a good looking movie as well. I think the visual quality to it is really interesting. But uh, yeah, I should I should watch it for real. Um, and then I have I don't know if next is that is that correct? Uh, yeah. yes, uh, yes. Okay. Oh man, another brand new movie that I just saw last night so I'm not sure um, my thoughts on it are fully formed yet but I loved it Mia Hansen loves Bergman Island okay um, is a movie that takes place on the island um, in Sweden where Ingmar Bergman lived and where he made many of his movies mm-hmm. and the film uh, takes those into uh, you know you can you can recognize um, certain buildings and they talk about like oh this is where the jetty was and through the glass through a glass darkly like the movie is talking about bergman uh, all the time but it's also about a couple who are both filmmakers uh played by tim roth and vicky creeps who are Mm. both working on screenplays of their own and are kind of using this as like an artist retreat Mm. they have a they have a a daughter together but she's like with grandma for like the week and they're just gonna like stay here and like work on their thing, but also like tour the Island because they're both Bergman fans or whatever. Um, so really it's, so it's a, it's a fun movie for Bergman fans. And I know there are bigger Bergman fans than I am, but I got a kick out of it. Um, uh, but it's also a movie about an artist working in the shadow of other artists and the idea of like, I mean, right from the beginning, Vicky, Vicky creeps is like, why did we choose to do this here? Like I, I sit down at this desk and I don't feel like I'm worthy because like, yeah, you know, Berkman wrote here or whatever. Um, but also the movie itself is not entirely, the movie itself is about their fandom and other people that come and go in the movie are fans of Bergman, but also some of them are not And the movie is, um, not like the movie itself is not fanish about, uh, Ingmar Bergman. I, I don't, I don't think, I don't think, uh, like I said, a bigger Bergman fan can maybe point this out, but I don't think visually Maya Hansen, Mia Hansen Love changes her style that much. To, mm-hmm. Like it doesn't feel like Bergman. It still feels like a Mia Hansen Love movie, right. or at least I should say it looks like a Mia Hansen Love movie. It does feel like Bergman in the way that I've come to love him. In that people talk about Bergman, and even within this movie, people talk about Bergman uh, in terms of like um, he was haunted and existential and like there's no catharsis for his characters. And like, there's a lot of that in his movies, but also there's, um, a great deal of attention paid in his movies to like physical humanity, tangible, physical humanity and the like tactile, just pleasures or, displeasures of of life and me hands and love definitely the movie might not look like Bergman but it felt like that it felt like it, there are these people going through some psychological turmoils but they're also just like living and like having sex and like there's 
it's the summer and they're on the beach and it's like awesome and beautiful. And the movie doesn't try to like make it feel all like right. cold. Um, uh, but there's a, uh, a reference of Vicky creeps is like, um, how could he have made such sad movies? This place is so, uh, beautiful. And Tim Roth is like, well, I wonder what it's like in fucking January. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. And then the, yeah, there's, uh, I've talked about the movie in general, the, the, the story goes in, in different places that are really, um, uh, fascinating and, and, and surprising at, at certain points. There's also, um, I don't know. There's another actress in the movie that I, I didn't know was in the movie, but I think that's because I don't pay attention. So I don't know if it's supposed to be, but, uh, oh, okay. one of my favorite actresses currently working is Mia Vashikovska. And she, oh, sure. She shows up in the movie for what ends up being a pretty large part as it, as it goes hmm. on. And so, uh, yeah, Vicky creeps, Tim Roth and Mia Vashikovska. That's, that's a fantastic three legged table right there. Not no. quite as good as a four leg. No, there table. is there is actually yeah. a fourth leg. His name is Anders um, Anders Danielson Lee, um, uh, and he's actually really good, good too. For some reason, I he's in Personal Shopper, but I know him most from uh, Paul Green Greengrass' Twenty Two July, which is not a good right. Uh, all right, your turn, and then I've got one more. Real quick, I will say. And this is so stupid, but it's the first place my mind went. Because uh, I got an email uh, about Bergman Island to, mm-hmm. to review it. And, um, and, when I, and I didn't, I assumed it was in some way about Ingmar Bergman. But like Bergman Island, my first thought was like, is that like a dour reality show? <laughs> <laughs> I just thought of like, you know, uh, like a dating show, but nobody like actually looks at each other when they're talking and just yeah. like this really, uh, stereotypical, like Bergman thing shot in black and white, obviously. Right. But, uh, and nobody ever winds up together except maybe to be miserable. Um, anyway. Okay. So, uh, so this is a rewatch for me, uh, that I, that I chose for my, uh, history of American cinema class. Uh, I'm talking about the mainstream sixties. Um, and we watch John's it's a mad, 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 mad world. You know what? The class is not long enough. <laughs> uh, but, uh, uh, John Sturgis's the magnificent seven, um, is what, uh, what I chose to watch. Cause I wanted to, you know, it's, history of American cinema. And so I want to try and work in like American genres. And we certainly did as far as film noir, but I wanted to get a Western in there. And I thought like, well, what you doing a a musical? I, I used to, uh, with this class, uh, essentially it was singing in the rain. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, but this time, honestly, I made a call based on my students and it's like i think they'll like this more um and we had we had briefly talked about even though you can't i feel like you can't teach an american film history class without touching on other cultures as well so of course i talk about kurosawa um because he's influenced by american pop culture and then he goes on to influence it and so we watch a scene from seven samurai and then we watch this and there's and that scene is definitely mimicked uh in this in this movie or whatever you want to say um recreated um have you seen the magnificent seven from 1960 i mean i saw the antoine fuqua one Oh, you got it. Um, <laughs> Which I didn't hate, by the it's way. It's not bad. Uh, and this one, it just... I don't think I've seen it 
I saw it many years ago, and I think I this is the first time I've seen it since watching Seven Samurai. And one thing that I admire about it is how patient it is. It's not nearly as long as Seven Samurai, but it like really takes its time, like assembling this team and getting them accustomed to like the little village and and all of that. It it really is. I mean, the western is a fairly patient genre anyway, but. Uh, but you would kind of feel like, all right, let's hurry up and get to it. Let's get this. Let's get this group together and show and watch their dynamic and stuff. No, it really does go just like one by one, getting a sense of who they all are, what they bring to the group. Um, and I really like that. And Elmer Bernstein's score is, of course, uh, wonderful and and inspiring and heroic and and all of that, uh, which I think is is interesting because the film does adopt a bit of a melancholy tone. And so to have it shot in this beautiful, uh, scope and then, uh, and then have this really inspiring heroic music to only to end, you know, essentially on the same tone as seven samurai, which is a little bit, uh, elegiac, I guess, um, is, there's something kind of admirable uh, about that, that John Sturgis would be, would be willing to do that. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, I think you would really love it. Um, it does feature on my long list of blind spots. It does feature, uh, uh, Eli Wallach as our villain. He is not for the first time, uh, playing a Mexican. Um, you know, it's, I, I really feel like Eli Wallach was the John Turturro of his day, where it's just like, we need, uh, who's somebody that can play a variety of ethnicities, uh, somewhat believably get Wallach. Um, and, uh, and he does a, he does a, a fine job with it. I don't feel like he's playing the character as a stereotype. In fact, uh, they develop his character as much as the character can be developed. Um, and he's often quite funny, as Eli Wallach often was. Um, and, uh, yeah, great cast all around, now that I think about it. It's Yul Brenner and Steve McQueen and James Coburn, Charles Bronson, uh, Robert Vaughn. Like, good cast all around and just a, a really solid movie. Uh, last movie for me, last movie of the journal, uh, is a movie that, um, Tyler, I think you'd really like. A documentary from 1992 that's been um, re- restored. Uh, Robert Muggy's Deep Blues. Okay. And it's about Mississippi blues. Oh, nice. Starts at the north and works its way down. Um, but it's less, for 1982, it's, it's less about the history. We get some history. We get some talk about Robert Johnson and stuff. But it's almost a way of, the the movie is saying, like, this is still going on. Like, this way of mm-hmm. life is still happening. And so we're seeing, it's the best kind of music documentary in that everyone we meet plays at least one full song. Nice. Um uh, sometimes just for, uh, just for the, the crew, like, you know, just plays on, um, in the living, a living room or on, on a, on a front porch. Um, sometimes you get an entire live performance at a juke joint. We get the, um, the guy, uh, his name's, um, Robert Palmer, not the addicted to love guy. But, um, I'm out. Uh, he's a music writer who's from Mississippi. Um, and he, uh, is our, our guide and he's, fantastic to listen to he's a great writer clearly wrote his own dialogue um and he talks he has a he has a southern accent that talks 
he sounds like, I don't know how well you know the drive-by truckers, but he sounds like Patterson Hood, who's okay. from Alabama, not Mississippi. But he has that same kind of talk where it's like, if I tried to do it, it would sound like I was like making fun of a Southern actor sure. or doing a bad one. But it's like, it's very natural coming out of his mouth. Um, it is, I guess, uh, in retrospect, weird that it's it's him and then like Dave Stewart from the Eurythmics, the British guy. Mm-hmm. So it's like this dorky white guy and this like British guy with a very like early nineties, uh, you know, uh, groomed beard, um, two, two white guys like walking through Mississippi and asking black people to play music for them. It's like, it's a, it's a weird optic now, but Just it's throwing money at them. <laughs> yeah. But it, it, um, uh, uh, but the music is, is fantastic. And so the, I mentioned playing on a front porch, the guy who plays on the front porch, the, the one musician that I knew it was already aware of that we see is R.L. Burnside. Mm. Um, and the reason I know him is because he had sort of a resurgence in the 90s. He made this album called Ass Pocket Full of Whiskey or mm. Ass Pocket of Whiskey. I can't remember if the word for, full is in there where the John Spencer Blues Explosion were his backing band. Mm. It's like, And so I'm like, after I watched the movie, I'm like looking on Wikipedia and I realized like, oh, this movie, Deep Blues, is why that happened. Like, oh. this is how John Spencer came to know about R.L. R. Burnside, became friends with him, wrote music with him, and made the album that I listened to in high school. Hmm. Um, so I guess it, it already had a legacy, but uh, now uh, you can see it all restored. Yeah, I, uh, I, uh, you, that does interest me. I'm, I'm a, despite being... I'd say aggressively white. Uh-huh. Uh, I am a big fan of Delta Blues uh, specifically. Oh, I feel like in the present day, like most Delta Blues fans now are it, uh, white guys like like us. And what's interesting is that, like, despite I mean, you know, we we lived in Chicago, which there is a specific kind of blues that came out of Chicago that I don't love. I don't really like the over electrified mm-hmm. kind of blues. Um, I tend to like stuff that's a little bit more stripped down and that's what you get from, yeah. uh, sort of Delta blues. And so like, uh, I remember there's, there was a time when I listened to it a lot and now all I want to do is listen to it again, like Mississippi Sheiks and Sunhouse and stuff like that. But anyway, um, Okay, my last uh, film is Ramon Menendez's... Hmm, it's always tough when something ends with a Z. Uh, uh, Stand and Deliver, which is a film that I have I've saw many years ago for the first time. Uh, showed it in a class last year and uh, it went over pretty well with the students. So uh, I showed... I'm teaching a diversity in cinema class, and so we're talking about... I've never seen this movie. This has, this has LDP in it? That's correct. Yes, All right. big LDP guy. <laughs> oh, you'd love it then, because he's he's really good in it. Um, I think of him as a good actor, but there's his character is man in the hands of a lesser actor. It's like, well, I'm not buying this character one bit. Uh, but you know, he does a great job, and obviously, also uh, EJO is is in it. He's uh, oh, okay. He's yeah. the lead character. He's nominated for an Oscar for it, um, and it's the true story of of. Uh, uh, this Bolivian uh, immigrant who worked for a computer company and then decided he wanted to be a teacher and he was going to teach uh, computer technology at this high school. But he shows up and they're like, ah, the computers didn't come in. Can you teach math? He's like, oh, okay. So he does that. And he just is a, a very specific kind of teacher and that like he pushes and does not, uh, and he, 
believes more in the students than they than they believe in themselves. It's a, it's a very classic mm-hmm. formula, but it works really well. And uh, and I think one thing that they do. I was reading Roger Ebert's review of it, and it wasn't necessarily a very positive review. And he, the thing he didn't like is the exact thing I do like, which is. Um, seeing sort of the students' home life, uh, home lives. Um, and each one has sort of a different, is a different situation that is often unfortunate, uh, having to take care of relatives, not being in a good financial position, stuff like that. Uh, and it helps you to understand them a little bit, but also there are moments where the teacher who's, he's this no nonsense guy. It's like, Hey, you got to be here on time. You got to do this, this, and this. And like, sometimes like there's a scene where a character is at the hospital with his grandma, who's he's basically taken care of and the hospital takes forever and he's late to class. Mm -hmm. And the teacher who we're on, we're on board with him. He's, he's not taking any excuses. And like when our, when this guy is trying to say like, uh, this is what was going on. And he just like is dismissive. Like he kind of goes, he occasionally goes a little bit too far with sort of his shtick or his patter or whatever you want to say. And is, is often a little insensitive. And I, and that's something that I really like is that like, he is our main character and we are sympathetic to him and what he's doing and how he does it. But even the film realizes like there's, you know, it's not just that like these are punk kids that have never been talked to uh, seriously. It's like, yeah, some of them are, are a little rough around the edges, but like they've got their stories and they've got their their lives outside of this class. And it's a it's a really solid film. And one thing that got me was that uh, the director, Ramon Menendez, he uh, he's only made like five or six things like he stopped. He, he wrote a little bit longer than he directed, but and I don't know why he did not die. I think maybe he just got tired of the industry or whatever. I don't know, but it's very, it's did unfortunate. Did like do well? Yeah, it was an independent film. It, it won the Indie Spirit Award for Best Picture. Edward James almost was nominated for Best Actor. Uh, the film is in the National Film Registry. Uh, it's... It is a very well respected film and it made, you know, made like 20 million on a $1 million budget. 20 million isn't that much, but it's 19 more than uh, one. And so <laughs> I learned that because of the film. It's a, uh, it's a math. Oh, it's math. Yeah, um, that's right. But, uh, but yeah, it's definitely worth, worth seeing. It is, it's everything that you expect from like an inspiring teacher movie. So it is going to have scenes that are a little bit cheesy. It is going to have things that are a little predictable, but within that, I think it's a, a really excellent version of it. 